Productivity is ultimately one of the greatest predictors of success in all fields. And it doesn't matter whether you're an artist or a scientist or whatever you're doing. Productivity is a key marker to long-term success. And, and I think it's quite simple. Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur, fascinated by human excellence at dealing with exponential information and author of the forthcoming book, Thriving on Overload. Every week you will learn from the world's best on how to transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. On this episode, we learn from Paul McCarthy. Paul is CEO of data science and research startup League of Scholars, which works with a wide range of organizations, including Nature and News Corporation, and is also the co-founder of a number of other ventures. He is an adjunct professor at the University of New South Wales and an honorary research fellow at Western Sydney University, as well as the author of Online Gravity, a successful book on how technology is rebooting economics. You can find more on Paul's work at onlinegravity.com and on Twitter at Paul X McCarthy. In this episode, Paul shares insights on networks to find experts, identifying authorities, computational social science and its applications, latent knowledge, and far more. Keep listening to learn from Paul's great insights. Paul, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks, Ross. So, Paul, I'd like you to tell us about League of Scholars and what the underlying principles are and how it helps you and others to thrive on overload. League of Scholars was a global startup that looks at researchers and research analytics worldwide. And the basis of League of Scholars is that individuals are the key to success of research. Uh, In recent years, in, in the last couple of decades, there's been a global rise in the rankings of universities and other research institutions worldwide. There's now three large uh, global ranking systems, the Shanghai ranking, the Times Higher Ed and the QS ranking. And all um, people interested in the university sector are aware of these and very acutely aware of the rankings gain between institutions in terms of how they're perceived in terms of their institutions' reputations. Uh, what we've realised is while these these rankings are, are useful, there's a lot of drawbacks with them. They're not very up-to-date. Often they include things like Nobel Prize winners for whom their work is, you know, 20, 25 years plus years ago. And often the, the rankings don't change very much each year. So, you know, most rankings have Harvard at the top uh, and that hasn't changed significantly in the last couple of decades, the elite list of organisations. So... What's not so visible, I guess, is um, information about individuals. And I guess that sort of granular and timely information is about what League of Scholars is about, about uncovering the individuals in science, engineering, health, but also in other areas, in humanities, in social sciences. So trying to understand who are the leaders in these individual, more specific fields, but also looking at tomorrow's leaders and the emerging stars. What's the basic principle underlying how it is you identify these stars in these fields? We use a variety of traditional bibliometric techniques. So for those unfamiliar with the research world, impact, the currency of research impact is citations. So the number of times that a work has been cited by other scholars in peer-reviewed journals and publications 
And so we use those traditional measures of bibliometrics, but also predictive measures. So we use machine learning to try and understand who is most likely to have the greatest impact in future. So especially for early career and mid-career people. And as inputs to that, I guess, there's a variety of measures that are known to be predictive of future impact. And one of those, of course, is your peer network. So that idea of who are your co-authors, you know, what are your current co-authors and how fast is the, the school of fish you're swimming with now, I guess, is one sort of way to think about it. So the... Of course, you can just go on a Google Scholar and see a number of citations of a particular scientist or, you know, from their papers and so on. But that's a pretty crude measure. And so I suppose, so how does the network aspect overlay that to identify who's most well-regarded in the field? What we do is we look at their co-author networks. So there's a, a range of network analytics approaches we use to understand the influence of their network and their both their direct co-author net co-authors and also their co-co-authors and so we build this analysis into the inputs if you like to machine learning algorithms which then go on to to predict scientists or other academics likely future impact we look at other things um, citation patterns vary radically between fields and across disciplines so you can't compare the citation impact of scholars in different fields so you can you need to compare like with like so we take that into account too and and also the stage and age of people the quality of the venues that they're publishing is, is is important too. In early on in one's career, uh, there's not a lot of data, so that it's quite difficult to see just with the, you know, with the untrained eye what to distinguish between people. But there are signals in the data. There is information that can be used to predict things like quality of venue, the co-authors, um, how many co-authors outside your institution. So do a bunch of social publishing metrics, if you like. So this idea you've uh, mentioned to me of the experts, expert. Yes. I'd love to hear about sort of where you've came across that idea and how you apply that in uh, both League of Scholars and also what, you know, just more generally how you are keeping across information. Yeah. Well, this idea was introduced to me by a colleague, Doris Spiel-Tanner. I think you may know Doris. She's an expert in network analytics and she explained to me that some of her previous work showed that you can discover an expert in any field by asking a series of simple questions iteratively to your peers. You, one can do it oneself. So, if you, you know, in a very simple sense, if you're looking for, you know, information about a restaurant in another city that you're not familiar with, you might ask someone who, who lives there and then they might not be much of a foodie and you might ask them to ask, who would they know in their city that's got a restaurant? Obviously, when it becomes a bit more complicated, if you're looking to understand quantum machine learning, for example, you might think of someone you know who's a scientist in your field and then ask them to ask, who, who do they know in their sphere who's the greatest authority in, in quantum computing and then quantum machine learning, another specialisation and a really hot field that's emerging now? They may know people in their sphere and so on. And and I guess we know from the work of network scientists like Barabasi and others that the six degrees of 
separation storied in the Fred Skepsy film is very true and is shrinking. So there is there is a path between us and most other people on the planet, which is quite short. And there's an easy way of identifying that through crowd, sort of a crowdsourcing, an iterative crowdsourcing approach. Your Marshall Kirkpatrick, who's uh, also spoken to us on uh, Thriving on Overload, is used, I think, the expert's expert frame for uh, his platform, Little Birds, to identify influences. I think it's also interesting looking at, uh, you know, network, uh, social network analysis. I mean, the classic, one of the classic techniques is the snowball, where everybody you ask, say, ask who else should be included. And, uh, and as such, sort of building, building out the scope of the, you know, the group and the interactions between them to, to ones that are, you know, encompass as many people as possible that are relevant. Yes, absolutely, Ross. That's a really good example. What it tells us, I guess, is that we're all much more connected than we think. And there's opportunities, I guess, yeah, that are in that. So, so are there any other particular aspects of the network analytics which help to uncover those that are the most, well, I mean, I suppose one of the things people talk a lot in network analysis is centrality. Yes. So who are the people who are most central to the network? So that's, a, I suppose, one indicator. But I mean, is that the best indicator or what are the ways in which within a network of experts who respect each other, how is it you find the ones that in any particular domain are, are going to be the, the ones you should be listening to? Yeah. One of the things is it's always about authority and expertise. So I think that particularly in academia, there's a lot of subtleties in academia. So as we know with Google search, there's, it's a, it's a, a two-dimensional thing. There's authority and, and relevance. And similarly, for any topic, you know, there might be people's uh, expertise might be subtly different. So I think that it's, it's quite difficult actually to put people, you know, into the same category. So often it's a case of finding the person who's most relevant to your particular information needs, if you like, rather than, you know, specifically saying that they're better or worse than another person. Having said that, obviously, if you're hiring and you're a university, you're looking to hire a an early career researcher and you want to have, you know, a significant impact in a particular field, you are going to choose between particular candidates. And uh, yeah, I mean, there are, there are a bunch of features that are predictive, um, but certainly the quality of the venues in which they're publishing, the influence and impact output productivity of their co-authors and their co-co-authors is significant. So let's say we've got a, a specific domain, not just quantum computing, but mm. specific aspects of that. So either currently, or can you envisage how we might be able to sort of get some real granularity around finding the expert in a very, very specific area? Yeah, absolutely. And this is um, something we, we've been doing quite a bit of work in is this computational linguistics, which is fascinating. So looking at using machine learning and computer science to do analysis of large-scale text databases, and that can be of literature or of news, for example, or of information just broadly available on the web. Wikipedia is another source. There's a fascinating study that was done a year ago and published in the journal PNAS, which looked at the last 100 years of books. 
So books published in English, I think they also looked at Spanish and they looked at the language used in all the books published in the last hundred years. And they found some macro trends in, in the use of language across a century over time. So each year's books were um, looked at separately and were analysed using a technique known as principal component analysis to understand what the characteristics or the features, if you like, which were most distinguishing of the language and how, that, how those features changed over time. It's, it's a fascinating study. It's one of the most interesting things I've seen in the last 10 years. And they came to the conclusion that there was an inflection point in 1980, a post-truth era, some people call it post-truth era, where um, basically for the, for the best part of the last century, so from 1900 until 1980, there's a rise in the use of rational language and there's a rise in the use of language that is in the third person and in an objective sort of sense. And then from... 1980 onwards, there's a decline in the use of rational language and, and an increase in the use of first-person pronouns, so me, myself, I, and also words associated with conjecture. So I believe, I think, my view is this, rather than we conclude or we have observed and so on. That's a sort of simplistic way of characterising, but it's, a, it's an incredible paper that that makes a, a wide-scale macro observation about society for which, you know, this, these kind of tools. Do, do you recall the title of the paper? It's The Rise and Fall of Rationality in Language. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Seems like a very, very uh, pointed uh, commentary on our times. And so I think if 1980 was post-truth, then uh, probably the last six years or so we're in post-post-truth. <laughs> That's right. I yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, we, we did a review recently. I wrote an article about the top eight papers over the last decade in this field of sort of computational social science because it's really only in the last decade that people have been using large-scale computation in the natural sciences and engineering for decades, obviously. And, you know, the, the big breakthroughs a decade ago in the, you know, the Hadron Collider and the discovery of these new, you know, fundamental particles in our universe as a result of large-scale computing, largely, and similarly in astronomy. There was a paper published in 2009 in Science called Computational Social Science by Barabashi and, and a number of other authors, Sandy Pentland from MIT, and it kind of foreshadowed, if you like, possibilities that large-scale computing could offer social scientists and also scholars working in humanities, digital humanities. And in the last decade, we have seen some amazing papers. And this is something that I'm particularly interested in. You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast series. If you'd like to learn more about how to prosper in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com to access all episodes, show notes, and other useful resources. And if you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe and help others to find us by giving us a review. Now back to the show. So I'd like to perhaps distill a little bit. So we're looking to thrive on overload. Yes. And I suppose both or either for academics and non-academics, mm. what are some of the lessons that you would derive from what we've just been discussing around identifying the credible or authoritative sources in a particular domain? Well, I think 
Network centrality is certainly, as you mentioned, one of the key things. So I think that it seems in any environment, as Google have identified it, you know, at the heart of their algorithm is the extent to which other people defer to individuals or sources of information. There was a piece of work we did last year, which was published in PLOS One, where we looked at online diversity over the last decade through the lens of links in Twitter and and Reddit in social media. So what we looked at was the diversity of links. So the number of links relative to the number of domains is quite revealing because it shows that over time the diversity of links is shrinking. In other words, more of the links across the entire web resolve to a smaller number of domains. And so you're seeing, for example, in various categories, so for example in YouTube a decade ago there was a variety of video platforms but now most video on the web is hosted on on YouTube similarly in social media. So you get these kind of realms. But one of the things I guess that it does reveal is what are the authoritative sources as defined by the the attention that people give them via um, these social media links. That was quite revealing. But from a, from a practical point of view, I guess, um, yeah, one has a mix of, I guess, you know, using, using various tools, but also I think, yeah, as we've referred to earlier, using one's social network as well, uh, you know, friends and colleagues. Though, though I suppose there is this thing is just because somebody is influential doesn't mean that they're right or worth listening to. I mean, yeah, there's probably plenty of examples of people that have very big audiences or many people look to them, but that doesn't necessarily arbitrate. And perhaps that's a difference between academic domains and non-academic domains, though I wonder even if that plays out a little bit in academic even in terms of popularity, as it were, or, or do you feel that... You know, it's interesting. Look, so to what degree can we infer credibility or authority yeah. from the network centrality? Yeah, that, that's a really good question, Russ. The way it works in academia is that you get a certain starting platform by your level of authority. So the trust and respect that you earn as an academic throughout your career gets you at a baseline, but it, it doesn't impact the overall success of, and total impact of, of the work. So there's a fantastic book called The Science of Science, which was published last year, and it looks at all the evidence behind bibliometrics. And one of the things they show is that the ultimate impact of scientific works is independent of the authority. But but what authority does give you is it gives you a starting platform. You're right, though. I think beyond academia, obviously authority confers a lot of influence but yeah, within academia, the peer review process still determines ultimate impact. And I think so one can have confidence, I think, that academic work is different in its character and its nature. And that's one of the reasons, I guess, many, many of us have a lot of trust and faith in, in scientific work, because I think it does have this kind of uh, unique approach. So round out, I'd like to sort of hear more about your ways in which you thrive and overload. I mean, you obviously are exposed to and digest a lot of research. Uh, you're running a startup, your fingers in a lot of pies. What's the day by day or the practice? Or what is it that, that you, know, you can share 
that you think would be valuable to others and how you thrive on extraordinary amounts of information? I think your framework in the book, Ross, is really good. So I think it comes down to a lot of things about purpose, having purpose leading to clarity and focus. There's obviously potentially an overwhelming amount of information out there and it's growing. We need to relax about that, I think, is the kind of key thing. And, And I think our relationship to information can be one of confidence or one of fear, you know, and I think it depends on how we see that in terms of our status, if you like, in relation to information. Information is only useful if it serves a purpose, which is, you know, useful to the user or the people in which you're helping through disseminating that information or if it's helping you do, do your job better. So I think that's a really useful way to cut through things. I'd have to say that I don't feel um, to, to be an expert myself in mastery of my own day. <laughs> well, no, nobody, nobody thinks that they are, but a lot of, but there are many of us who, many people I know who are extraordinary. They just uh, don't think of themselves that way, and probably me included. You know, or aren't as aware of their own practices that get there. Yeah, and I think that's partly that thing of what, that sharing of well, what is it that you know you think might be useful for others as you as you have been. Yeah, I guess trying to be mindful of the day. I am aware of the the research on this that productivity is ultimately one of the greatest predictors of success in all fields, and it doesn't matter whether you're an artist or a scientist or whatever you're doing. Productivity is a key marker to long term success, and and I think it's quite simple. I think that doesn't matter whether you're an artist or a scientist or a business person. Much of life is a series of experiments, whether they're formal lab experiments or whether they're a startup or whether they're, you know, uh, experiments in relationships or, you know, we're all experimenting, you know, and we're all doing what we can with what information we've got. Absolutely. And learning from that as we go. And I think the thing is about productivity is it's just a sign that you've done more experiments. I mean, ideally, I think we learn from others. That's that's an ideal sort of thing. But often it seems that the best lessons are the hardest one that are um, challenges usually that we've faced ourselves. And we seem to have the, the most significant lessons from those experiences. Yeah, I think that's it's worth noting that, that there is a relationship between productivity and, and success. The other thing I should say is, Again, drawing on Varabashi's work, who's written a book about success with all their sort of amazing work that they've done on networks, they said that there are two things that drive success. They divide the world into two. There are those industries and fields of endeavour that that have performance measures. Sport's one of those. You just have to be good at performing, you know, and you need to get better at performing and you need to practise and continually practise Whereas some fields of endeavour, such as art and to some extent business, are much more ephemeral and there's the, the measures of success are much more judged through social influence and networks. And so where there are no clear measures of performance or success through performance, then networks trump performance. That's all their kind of science in a nutshell about performance. That's really interesting. And I think it goes to the point that part of it is in recycling the information we bring in. So part of the value, of course, of our information is to help our, us think better and act better. But it's also the more that we then 
share that out, hopefully in a, having added value to it through our thinking, that is a fundamental part of network formation of where people can then sort of see that, what we've done with that information and, and where the network becomes, as you say, you know, either central to performance or, or trumping performance. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point, Ross, about the visibility of seeing the networks and seeing the provenance of ideas. I think that's another kind of feature of academia, I think, that is worthwhile for people to be aware of in in day-to-day life too. I think we're all benefiting from others. You know, personally, I've benefited from your insights, Ross, throughout the years, and it's been wonderful. You know, like I think you introduced me many years ago to the concepts of impro and the improvisational theatre, and um, that's led me down, you know, some fantastic paths, and I've learned a lot as a result of that. And, And I think we're all in the same boat where we are like Newton, standing on the shoulders of giants comment. I think that we're all indebted to others and being able to see that is a, is a great way of learning. And, and humility is great. The best way to learn anything, I think, is the greatest barrier to learning anything is to think that you know it already. And one of the things that fascinates me, I think, with this information space, possibly the most interesting question for me is this idea of latent knowledge. And I'll just mention one other. I know I've mentioned lots of academic papers. There's another paper uh, published in Nature a couple of years ago looking at latent knowledge in it's in chemistry research. So what they're doing is they're using this computational linguistics again to look at a really large database of chemistry research papers. And what they found is that there's all this information that can be inferred automatically from the papers, firstly. Things like the periodic table can be inferred semi-automatically out of the papers, out of the papers themselves using these new techniques. But not only that, there's latent information, in other words, hidden information that was not available uh, or not widely known amongst chemistry researchers worldwide at the time, which is in the papers. So there's new materials, for example, that can be predicted through analysis of these papers using machine learning. And it gives you a glimpse into this idea that there is all this information potentially available, which is beneath the surface you know there's this kind of like iceberg we see the tips of this iceberg but underneath there's this potentially huge reservoir of information so that's personal interest of mine uh, that i think there's a lot more you know interesting ideas out there that are yet to be discovered absolutely and i think you know it's a fantastic place to end i suppose in the potential of not just uh, what we can create but what's already out there and how we can find that so thank you so much for your time and your insight paul that's been fantastic thanks ross Thank you for listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. Visit thrivingonoverload.com for all episodes, show notes, and other useful resources. And if you want to keep learning each week from our amazing guests, please subscribe on your favorite app. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.